We wanted to get the business to be worth £20 million. The reason £20 million was the magic number was simply because Charlie, the CFO, was the oldest by far. He was approaching his 60th birthday. He owned 5% of the company, and in his head he thought if he could get a £1 million for his shares, that was his retirement sorted. What happened was once we started to understand private equity, we realised we could get to that valuation earlier than we thought we would do through a trade sale. I'm Guy Gillen, one of the co-founders and managing partners at Tenzing. We're a private equity firm and we're passionate about the human stories in business. In this series, I'm getting under the skin of some of the UK and the tech world's most interesting founders, entrepreneurs and CEOs. Finding out what drives them, what keeps them awake at night and what they've learned along the way that can help us in our own lives too. Welcome to The Ascent. Today, I'm very pleased to be able to share with you my recent conversation with Glenn Elliott. Now, many of you may know Glenn as the former CEO and founder of the Employee Benefits Juggernaut Reward Gateway and the co-author of The Rebel Playbook. But I'm lucky enough to know him not only as a colleague who runs Tenzing's Entrepreneurs Panel and Growth Team, but also as a friend. Glenn spent 10 years in software testing at BT and he's very much an engineer at heart. And as a result, this part of his character drives a deeply methodical view of business as he boils down value creation into its core growth ingredients, increasing sales and minimizing costs. As we all know, one of the main challenges in growing businesses is that there are so many options and directions available to us. But what you get with Glenn is a super impressive ability to shortcut and distill the noise and to focus on the really impactful stuff that helps us efficiently grow and accelerate a business. And it's this that I hope you take away from the episode. So let's dive in. Enjoy. Glenn Elliott, founder and retired CEO of Reward Gateway, author of best-selling engagement book, The Rebel Playbook, and most importantly, chair of Tenzing's Entrepreneurs Panel and now full-time running our growth team at Tenzing. Mm. For those of us that know you and, you know, you're quite a flamboyant character, colourful shirts, a bit of body art, now big hair. (laughs) (laughs) But I've seen photos of you at the start of RG and you look like a software engineer. And you did 10 years at BT. And if I remember, it was like software testing as well. Yeah, software testing. So I'd love to dig into that really interesting because it's like 10 years, quite a long time in a big, mm. big public organisation like a BT or, you know, like utility. Yeah. So tell me about what your decision was when you left uni and why you did that and why you did it for so long. Because I think people would be surprised that you did that for such a period of time. I'd always been into computers, as we called them in the 80s. You know, I got my first computer in 12, 13, Sinclair ZX81, one kilobyte of memory. That's less memory than would hold the header of an email these days. Wow. And I programmed for that. I always knew I wanted to be involved in software. I loved my degree in software engineering. What was interesting about how I ended up in system testing was a complete accident, really, of the BT graduate scheme. Mm. I remember joining on my first day at BT, and there was three of us joining on the same day, and we all got into the lift. And we went up to the second floor and the HR person took two of the other graduates out and said to me, stay here, you're going to the sixth floor. And I thought, wow, sixth floor, that sounds exciting. <laughs> it was right at the top. I wonder what's there. And it was um, the software testing department, which I'd never really heard of. Of course, when you were training as an engineer, you don't really think about testing. It's an afterthought. <laughs> but I was, if I was perturbed on day one of being in, a, in not the job I wanted, actually, I grew to really love it. I love testing. I did it for years. You know, one of my natural attributes is I'm very curious about things. So I'm always 
Like I'm always learning about stuff. I mean, you could stick me in an empty room and I wouldn't get bored. And software testing is really plays to your curiosity instinct about, you know, finding the boundaries of things, finding out how things work and trying to figure them out. But I did, I think the, the thing that made me leave really was realising that if I didn't leave at 10 years, I'd probably be there for the rest of my life. And that was the trigger. I realised that wasn't really what I wanted and I wanted to do something else. I'd been involved in business enterprise programmes at school in my teens. So I'd had the bug then. I had just sort of paused it for a while, but I kind of got it back quite quickly when I got into building websites for myself and for clients. Leaving BT wasn't your first taste of entrepreneurship. Didn't you run a tuck shop at the school? Yeah, yeah. I was so fortunate. In When I was 15, so what's that, 1987, my school, we had a fantastic form teacher called Mr Scaife, Ken Scaife, big shaggy hair. During the summer, he was a roadie for a rock group. He smoked roll-ups in the corner of the classroom all throughout the lesson because, you know, this was the 80s. He got involved with the NatWest Bank in a business enterprise programme where he would help you come up with a business plan. You'd trips down to the bank at the after school. They would politely look at it. They would give you a business checkbook out of £50 overdraft, which was a huge amount of money when you're 13, 14. And then you would run your business and pay 10% tax to the school. And I did a series of businesses. I did. I was involved in a soft toy production company, which made Winnie the Poohs and Piglets, obviously with no licensing paid to Disney. And we did that for six months. I ran a school magazine that was banned after two issues. We used to largely copy articles out of the Sun newspaper, which my dad got, and that was deemed as nefarious. So we, that got killed. And then I found a cupboard in the school corridor, which I turned into a school tuck shop. And I opened every break time and made a fortune. In fact, I had more spare cash in those two years than I had for years after, because you make a lot of money selling chocolates and crisps to kids at school. <laughs> so I guess that's where it started. And, and it's interesting, you know, I was only at school, I was very, very young, but you know, it taught us basic bookkeeping, basic accounting, taught us the idea of tax, taught us how to deal with a supplier, and uh, it was a pretty marvellous programme, really. It was there that I got my first seeds. And yeah, as I say, I took a 10-year corporate pause, but I learned a lot in that 10 years. And I'd been working with a marketing agency in my last job in BT. And I thought that would be interesting. You know, it looked like something I could do. Fortunately, I knew very little about it. If I'd known everything I had yet to learn, I would probably have been too terrified to start. So I set up a marketing agency, building websites initially, but then getting into brands and print media and all sorts of stuff. And so to tell me about that. Was that on your own and was it successful? Yeah, it was with um, my partner at the time, Gavin, who was creative director. He was finishing a PhD in media studies. So we worked together as a team. I got it to about a million turnover, about, I don't know, 15, 20 people, largely living from hand to mouth. That sort of business teaches you a lot about cash flow management and about, you know, how it's salary and tax bills that are going to put you out of business and having that feeling at four in the morning of waking up and worrying about where next month's salary is going to come from for everybody. And it's interesting, you know, I was talking to one of the CEOs of one of our businesses today and he was talking about a CTO that we've recently helped him hire. And that CTO had also been an entrepreneur himself. He was talking about how commercial this CTO was and how sales focused he was and how much he valued that and I think there is something really special that you learn from running your own business when it's you that has to worry about feeding people and paying salaries and it's not a corporate employer there's something very special that you learn from that which is painful at the time actually. And then uh, what made you leave or sell or how did you evolve that to the next stage? Well it's running a services business is tough you know whether it's marketing services or professional services it doesn't really matter you're selling time you're selling consultancy so you have two real problems firstly everyone really wants the chief exec to be the consultant because everyone wants the the chief person which you can't do so you have to try and sell in your team 
you're always struggling to get recurring revenue because you generally get more one-off projects than recurring revenue. And then you, you get a big project, you scale up for that project, and then the project ends and you end up with staff, bigger cost base. So it's very, there's limited recurring revenue, too much competition, and it's very difficult to really scale. And my craving was, you know, I'm an engineer, so I kind of see the world partly at least in, in, as systems. And I, I'm always craving to have a system that works smoothly like a machine would do and I kind of I was desperate to get my agency to the stage where it would work as a self-fulfilling machine that I could step back from and I eventually realized that was never going to happen quite a few people would say to me ah so is it is it a lifestyle business you're running and I'm like no 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 it's a business business it's not a lifestyle business and I realized eventually they weren't asking me they were telling me and I realized it wasn't the lifestyle I wanted whilst I was interested in marketing and I enjoyed many parts of it it wasn't my passion to do that just for doing good. My passion was for business. I wanted to build a successful business that I could ultimately step back from and it would carry on growing without me. And I realized that that had to be a product business where you can sell essentially the same thing again and again and have you know your profits scale as a result of that. So when you wound that business up... How did you make that jump from service to product? What happened was I was very unsatisfied at the agency. My relationship with my partner was breaking up as well at the time, partly caused by the stress of the business. So I knew we needed to unravel. And I remember one of the problems you have when you're running your own business is, you know, you've committed so much time and passion and energy to it. The idea of walking away from it seems impossible. And I can remember thinking I was trapped, feeling very, very trapped in this business. And we had this fantastic account manager called Stephanie Wilkinson. It was amazing. And then she resigned one day. And I was like, God, even Stephanie can resign from this business. I'm the only person who is stuck here. And I remember having a a shower moment. I just realized if I left that business, I wasn't leaving everything behind. Because the biggest prize that I'd gained from that time there was what I'd learned. And I would take that with me. So the reward of all that work wasn't the value in, in the marketing services business. It was the knowledge that I'd learned and the experience that I'd gained. And I would take that with me to my next venture. So I decided that I was also going to leave. Uh, I'd, around about that time, I, I stumbled upon this business of employee discounts and employee benefits. And I'd found a company on the Internet who was doing something similar in the consumer end that I thought we could work with. And I, I'd made contact to a guy called Chris Whitcomb who ran that business. He was 22 years old, running it from his parents' spare bedroom. And uh, he was my co-founder in what became Reward Gateway. But that was the transition, realizing that I could let go of what I'd built because hanging on to it was actually holding me back. So when you and Chris sort of kicked off as co-founders, what was the goal when you started? I mean, we had nothing. We didn't have a business plan really at all, really. You know, the, the goal was to build a product that we could sell to an employer for a price. And what was interesting is, and I guess this is maybe where being unafraid, I was going to say being unafraid to be different and a rebel is helpful, but actually that's not true. I'm not sure I was unafraid of it. I think I probably was afraid, but I did it anyway. When we joined the employee discounts industry, we weren't first at all. There was at least half a dozen competitors in the UK. Two of them were actually bizarrely owned by banks so one was owned by Lloyd's TSB and one was owned by Halifax Bank of Scotland and the reason that they were in the employee discounts business was they would sell their mortgages through those products to employees so they were our competitors so two of them very very well funded and they were all free to the employer and we my model was going to be we're charging the employer money so rather than making money off advertising we're going to charge the employer for a really amazing service 
And everyone said we would fail. I mean, everyone. I remember negotiating with the trade magazine, employee benefits magazine, and they were very sympathetic and didn't really want to take our money because they thought our idea was so doomed to failure that we weren't going to be a client of theirs for very long. But I I just had this belief that the products that the market currently had were poor. And if we did a really good job, it would be worth something to the employer. And whilst we were the only company in the UK that thought that, and I'm probably scared about that, to be honest, I didn't let that stop me. So we did it anyway. And when did you go from essentially having a belief about a product to going, okay, this is a real business now? Yeah, I mean, I remember, you know, I remember the first client going live, very exciting. You know, when you put your first client live in the back end, you're like, someone's just logged in. Someone's just registered. Someone we don't know. Not my mum. It's somebody else. (laughs) Really, really exciting. Uh, The first two clients, we essentially gave the product for free initially. It's BBC and British Airways. And the third client was Next Retail. And we gave them a very, very good deal. But it was a very powerful way to start because it meant that, you know, I remember our first advertising and in in those days we were taking out magazine adverts in the trade press and we had quotes from British Airways, BBC and Next Retail about why they chose us and everyone was like how did they manage to do that and the reason was we hadn't really charged them anything we used relationship to just persuade them to install it and I think over the next six six to nine months we started to get paying customers and I think when the cadence of those started to get to one or two a month, it started to feel real. Mm. And I actually don't think, though, we really clicked that this business was going to be something until year two, when you suddenly see the magic of recurring revenue. When your sales are starting to go up, so your cadence is going from one a month to two a month to three a month to four a month. But then, lo and behold, you get to bill the one that you sought last March as well. And you're billing last year's clients for the second time. And when you see that amazing compounding of recurring revenue, that's when I was like, this could go somewhere. When did you actually start committing plans to paper, as it were? Do you remember the first time you actually sat down and went, okay, rather than exploring, let's actually go to this point here? Well, I remember how we started. I mean, we had a quite a slow start. I mean, Chris and I decided, agreed we'd run the business together and we drafted some sort of friendly agreement. And then we spent the first nine months meeting on a Saturday morning in the Weatherspoons pub on Euston Road to design screens and try and sketch out ideas. I was normally hung over on a Saturday morning and, you know, he was on his way to football practice. And we, I'm not sure we got much done from one Saturday to the next, but we muddled through and started a relationship. I think when we started to really think this is going somewhere and it's deserving of proper attention was once we drew that recurring revenue graph and we could start to see the leverage you know that selling software is an amazing thing because if you're a true SaaS business it's a bit like the plane's already flying and you put a new customer in a seat and all you've got to do is buy them lunch and a cocktail your incremental costs of a new client are very very small and I think once we started to understand that we started to really see where we could get EBITDA and I think the first strategic plan we had it was a great target with a very simplistic reason we wanted to get the business to be worth 20 million pounds The reason £20 million was the magic number was simply because Charlie, the CFO, was the oldest by far. He was approaching his 60th birthday. He promised his wife he would retire at 60. He owned 5% of the company. And in his head, he thought if he could get a million pounds for his shares, that was his retirement sorted. So the whole early stage business plan was just essentially down to getting Charlie a million pounds. Yeah, right, so it was a goal seek. It was a goal seek. And I, and I think, you know, we could see how the numbers were going. We could see that we could do that. What happened was because once we started to understand private equity, we realised we could get to that valuation earlier than we thought we would do through a trade sale. Because you come from testing in BT for 10 years and 
marketing services and you talked about being curious but suddenly you've picked up you know recurring revenue SaaS business models EBITDA private equity where are you learning all that from I don't know I mean I think part of being curious I guess is you know I've always ended up learning little bits every day People often think my super strengths are things like marketing or employee engagement or B2B sales, that sort of stuff. And they're all skills that I develop, but I actually think my super strengths are curiosity, learning, open-mindedness, and a real desire to simplify things. I've always been a simplifier. I've always wanted to try and understand something in a way where I can then simplify it. So I think, you know, that people often think that business is about a lot of luck and being lucky. But one thing which I, I heard somewhere quite early on in my career and I really believed in is... The harder you work and the more you put yourself out there, the more luck you have. The more people you meet, the more serendipitous opportunities you find, the more useful contacts you find. And so I was very active in being you know, out there at conferences and at chambers of commerce, everything really, trying to meet as many people as I could and trying to learn from them. And I think there's almost no one I haven't learned something from. to Charlie so Charlie's approaching 60 he'd love to retire his dream wish is to sort of retire with a million pounds five percent shareholder 20 million pounds in value private equity could potentially unlock that for you you've kind of worked out valuation metrics roughly so you know where you need to get to you've still got five shareholders at that point and you and Chris are still both driving the business forward together or yeah I mean you know Chris ran our small engineering team I was always CEO it's interesting, you know, Chris and I, we've always got on, I don't think we've ever had an argument, but we, were, we weren't friends before we started the business, you know. And since you know, he left the business on the first investment back in 2010, and because we were 80 staff by then, it was already too big for him. He didn't want to be part of something that was that large. So he fully cashed out then and left. Often you get this two or more than one founder and some people are comfortable that you know, high energy, small startup, mm-hmm. can touch and feel everything and can get your arms around the business. And for many people, it can become too big, but not everyone acknowledges it. Yeah. I mean, Chris is a really special person. He's super smart. But he's super smart, but super shy. Uh, so when he was at school, if you were one of the top three scoring people in any exam, you had to get on the stage to get an award at the end of the year. He came fourth in nine of his exams, which was incredible. And it's imperceivable how he managed to do that. But that's what he would do to avoid the limelight. So in 2009, 2010, he was already managing down his visibility. And I can remember when we were selling to Inflection, running a private equity sale is a very busy period and you, you have lots of advisors and diligence people running around the business. And I remember someone calling the reception and asking to speak to Chris Whitcomb and the receptionist said there's no one here of that name because she didn't even recognize the co-founder's name because she'd never seen him but he'd done some amazing stuff he'd been to Australia set up our Australian business which is a hugely successful business now but he never really wanted to be in the limelight and he never wanted to be you know an ongoing part of that story I think by the time he said it was already passed big enough for him I think I also realized you know he was right so all my co-founders left in 2010 and I was the one that stayed to run the business. Reflecting back on it, I was probably ready to go alone for the next stage. And so then choosing private equity process, what that was like, what you were worried or excited about and kind of how you ended up choosing or kind of if you had a scorecard or what was your approach to that? It was Nick Jones, who at the time was at Clearwater Corporate Finance. I remember the call when he said to me, have you thought about private equity? 
And I was like, why on earth would I do that? Isn't that the sort of thing you do when you want to build a factory or get some money for capital assets or something? I had no idea what it was. And he said, no, no, there's P that invests in your sort of business. And I'm like, oh, aren't they all kind of bad people, you know, asset strippers? You know, you hear of private equity in a negative sense normally because you, you tend to hear about turnaround equity where, you know, you're buying mm. the little chef or HMV or something that's essentially failing. That's the stuff that gets the press, the John Moulton type stuff. Mm. And I remember what he said. He said, look, then, you know, in every walk of life, there's a lot of average. There's some poor people who are really poor and there's some people who are really great. And I'm only going to introduce you to the ones that are great. And that's where it started. You know, he said to me that private equity will pay tomorrow's price today, which is true. You know, if you're on a growth curve, they will take a view of where the growth's going. And I went on a tour of Mayfair. Met, I wasn't sure who I was going to choose. And I went home and my job was to spend the weekend deciding who I would choose. And it was the Sunday afternoon when I decided it was Christian at Inflection. And the reason I chose him was he said something to me in the last week. You know, he said, Glenn, this is the biggest deal I've done by myself. So he said, your success is really, really important to me because my career depends on it. If I have a really good success with you, then, you know, my career is going to be good. And I really wanted that. My business was really important to me and I wanted it to be really important to the investor as well. And it was that, be believing that he, it really mattered to him. So you end, end up making a decision based on essentially personal trust. Absolutely. When you do your first deal, you think your cash out is the big thing. And the rollover is some kind of like fantasy oddity that you think you're never going to see again. Ironically, we'll make more money from the next reward gateway sale than I made from the previous two, and I'm not even there. So actually, the rollover and the, your future equity is really important. Therefore, the person you choose on that journey is really important. It's very natural to think that your first sale, it's a huge event for you personally. So it's the big event. But actually, if all goes well, there's going to be a bigger event five years later that you're going to be part of. So the choice of where that capital comes from, you know, the sort of person you can be working with, and it doesn't only direct how successful that next capital event is going to be, it also very much affects how happy you're going to be for the next five years, which is going to be stressful, growing your business, under a lot of pressure, and are you going to have the person next to you that you really want? So you've got a transaction, you've bought out effectively all the other founding partners, so you kind of the sole founder remaining, you've taken 50% of your value off the table or there or thereabouts, so you're now financially secure. It must be relief and relaxation. It's funny. I remember I remember the first day. So we closed the deal on the 1st of December 2010. And on the 2nd of December 2010, I remember going to Selfridges thinking I couldn't buy anything I want. And I roamed the floors of Selfridges in the morning and I left with a coffee and a sandwich from Eat. <laughs> there wasn't, wasn't anything I actually wanted, which is interesting. And it's the more I've been involved with people doing their first transaction, the more common that story is, that the money is less interesting than you than you might think the security is fantastic not having to worry about the gas bill or the electricity bill or having to you know have family stress about the priorities between different things you want to do is wonderful but the the money is is definitely not the prize that you think it might be and i remember feeling under a lot of pressure because of what i promised and the pressure to perform and i think you know if you're fortunate enough to do a deal with someone that you really like, then the internal pressure you get from doing that, from not wanting to disappoint, is huge. Mm. Uh, and I talk to lots of founders who've done their first deal. They don't talk about how great it is to have a lot of money. They all talk about the pressure that they now feel to deliver on the deal that they've promised. So I know you had a really industrious, how many, was it five years were you with? 
Christian for? Four and a half. Four and a half years with Christian Net Inflection. So four and a half years and you had some big milestones, but like business model wise, what were the big changes that you made during that five year period? There probably two significant really changes that happened. First on product, we started the migration away from being a single product business with employee discounts to being a multi-product business starting to cover more parts of the um, employee engagement sort of journey or set. We also did international. We'd, we founded our Australian business just before the deal, actually. And we continued to progress that uh, and build that. We planted a flag in the US and started a very, very long, expensive and <laughs> patchy campaign at making the US successful. And I think it is even in the last quarter under Doug, my successor's leadership, I think they just turned the corner, finally. And the other thing we did was I realised how the market was getting more competitive, our products were getting more complex, there was more of them, the demands for clients were getting greater, and also I wanted to keep pushing the price up to push the margin up. So I knew I was going to have to provide more and more and better service all the time. I knew that clients would pay for better service, I'd proven that. So I needed to work out how to do that. So I bought a business which had five staff in the UK and 10 staff in Bulgaria, and I used that as a platform to build what became our Bulgarian support centre. So today, Reward Gateway has about 440 staff, and just over half of them are based in Plovdiv, Bulgaria, which is nearly all of engineering, most of product management, all back office, HR, finance, property, the user help desk for the whole world. So it's a 24-7, 365 help desk covering UK, Australia, US, all run from Plovdiv, and the back end of client support is all there. So that was a really big piece and I remember doing that. For me, it made complete sense and was uh, a complete no-brainer with no risk for Christian. He, I clearly I remember looking back on it. He, he clearly thought it was much higher risk than I did. <laughs> and it's probably the only time we've had a proper disagreement, I think. I can remember what he said to me. He's like, Glenn, why are you doing all this, making all this change to customer service? Because I look at your renewals and your churn and your customer satisfaction and everything looks fantastic. You know, you've got customer satisfaction in the 80s. You've got NPS way up churns, single digits, what are you fixing? And that's when I realised actually that when you're outside a business looking in, you're basically looking at historic data. And the thing that we need entrepreneurs to do, the key thing that entrepreneurs have to do is they have to see what's coming. They have to see the future, which is really, really hard, but is essential. That's what great entrepreneurs do. They see what's coming, what will happen. And then they put the business in the right place for that. And then they have to do the second biggest, job, hardest job, which is to win everyone over because no one else can see it. So just to give everyone listening an idea of the scaling that went on in your four and a half years, can you just compare and contrast some key, I don't know, identifiers like revenue and staff and profit and number of countries that you operated in? December 2010, when we saw to inflection, we were basically a London business with a two staff in Australia. We were doing 7 million revenue, 3 million EBITDA. We were valued at 25 and a half by inflection. And you had about, what, 90 staff, was it then? About 80, yeah, about 80, 90 staff. Take it forward five years later to Great Hill. We were doing about 24 million revenue, about 12 million EBITDA, 300-ish staff. London and Birmingham, UK, Sydney and Melbourne, Australia. New York at about 70 staff in Bulgaria. And then now the business today... It's about 45 million revenue, 22, 23 million EBITDA, got 440 staff. The US centre moved from New York to Boston. Everything else is, is the same, but with half the staff in Bulgaria. So it's a 
decent size. It's a decent sized small to medium sized business now. Obviously, working with us here, no longer CEO, but I'd love to. That's such a controversial area of a founder's journey, or can be a controversial and can be mishandled by both investors and founder CEOs themselves in terms of the succession and moving away. How did you handle all that? It's interesting. I'd always been, not always, for some years I'd been interested in when is the right time to leave. And I remember I'd, during my inflection time, I had a chairman, Andy Vaughan, great chair. I'd asked him several times, how do I know, how do I know when I'm not good enough anymore? How do I know when it's time to leave? And he used to do two things. Firstly, Glenn, it's not now, but not now. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember he said to me, you'll know it's time to leave when you've run out of ideas, when you don't know what to do next. Because his experience was he'd found businesses where the founder had, you know, had run out of ideas. Interestingly, that wasn't my situation. So I, I decided to step down, I think it was mid-2017. I was full of ideas. Even now, I struggle not to have ideas about that business, about where it could go and what it could do. I still have a regular call with the chief product officer. It was my idea, it wasn't the investors. My job title was founder and CEO. The, you know, the company was big, I had an 11-person exec team. We're fighting on three continents at the same time. I've been doing it for 12 years. I think a couple of things, I realised a few things at the same time. Firstly, some of the problems were starting to repeat themselves. So something would occur in the business and people would go, oh my God, Glenn, what do we do? And I'm like, oh shit, we fixed this five years ago. We've done this. And I realized there's an interesting thing about a growing business. It's just because you fix something doesn't mean it goes away because it can re-break itself later on and you actually have the same thing again. So there's a little bit of deja vu started to sleep in. I realized the business was now quite a size. You know, I'd come close to achieving what I wanted, which was a machine that actually runs there's a person for every job. I mean, everything, you know, information security had great team behind it. It didn't need people doing like five different jobs at the same time. And the downside of that for me as an entrepreneur was by no stretch of the imagination a slow corporate compared to the startup I'd set up, you know, where you could have an idea at nine o'clock and execute it by tea time. You know, I would have an idea and think, oh, shit, okay, that's not my domain, that's so-and-so's domain. I need to go and discuss that with them and see what they think. And then they're going to have to think about that against their priorities and get that onto their roadmap or their plan. And then maybe that's going to happen in six months' time. And I found that less satisfying than when I could make things happen quicker. The other thing I realised is I think the magic that a great founder gives you is they've been there since the start, they've got all corporate history and they can pretty much zip into almost any department often and fix it if it's gone wrong, which is a huge asset to have when things are rocky. The downside of that is it can hold your team back and your team down. And by this time I'd recruited a really great exec team and I kind of thought they deserved or would benefit from a different sort of leadership style to mine. And that absolutely came true because when Doug joined the business, he'd been CFO for about a year, but he didn't know anything like what I knew about the business. So he had to rely on the team. And what I really saw was I really saw that team rise up to the challenge and become, you know, who they really could be, which was a really nice thing to see. And I think the last thing is I was tired. I'd done 12 years of really, really hard on work and I needed a break. And I kind of, I thought, you know, that one of the things about being an entrepreneur in a fast growth business is it's all consuming. You know, your, your family life, your friendships, your relationships, everything becomes second best. You know, if I was lucky enough to be in the right company for a friend's birthday, I'd be landing at midnight to get to the party of a plane from somewhere just to, you know, make an appearance. You know, everything becomes second best. And I just decided that I'd done enough and I wanted to make some other things my priority in my life. So it was definitely my decision. I taught my husband Christian first. Once I tell him something, I know it's gonna become true. I then told 
Doug, who was then the CFO, I was thinking about making CEO, taught him next. And then I flew to Boston to tell my investor. Uh, and I was nervous about it because I felt I was letting them down. I felt that I had done the deal with them with the intention to stay the full term. And I remember saying to them, we went for lunch at the Four Seasons Hotel in Boston, and I said, I have two jobs, founder and CEO. I think I'm doing one of them well and one of them badly. And he looked at me and he's like, which way around does this go? What are you saying? And I was like, I think I'm doing a good job of being founder, doing you know vision outside and external affairs and conferences and stuff. And I think there's a better CEO for this business at this stage than, than me. And he, he was, you know, as ever, amazing. He just said, okay, if that's what you want. That's what we'll do. What's interesting, I then, you know, I, I then think about, you know, how do you do the transition? And I was already chairing the Tenzing Entrepreneurs Panel by this point, at least half of which, if not more, have done the founder to CEO transition before. And I asked all of them for advice. And I remember what Louise said to me. She said, Glenn, sometimes it goes wrong because the founder doesn't get far enough out of the way. And sometimes it goes wrong because the founder gets too far out of the way. And you've got to find the right place. And I decided that for me, the right place would be to make Doug the CEO. I knew what a hard job it would be to follow a founder, especially, you know, a charismatic founder that was synonymous with the brand that that guy was. And I needed to give him the best possible chance to win. That was now my job, help Doug be successful in his new job. That was all that mattered. And I think, you know, you've got to get out the new person's way and and let them get on. Just getting back to that massive scaling of the business, what drove you? What was the bit that pushed you to work so damn hard for such a long period of time? It's a question I've thought often of and trying to work out where my own motivation comes from. And I sometimes I've thought private equity, you know, finds psychologically damaged people who uh, are just obsessed with performance and delivery. And no matter how much money they make, they can't stop working hard. I think I was always driven by being able to imagine something that didn't exist, being able to imagine this company and this set of products in a certain way. And having not delivered that yet, I really wanted to deliver it. I really wanted to build that. Of course, every time you get one step closer to that vision, you can see further. So you never get there. And I think that was part of my reasons for leaving in the end was I realized I would never be actually satisfied. I would never get to the point of saying, I've done it. There was always going to be unfinished business. And I think, you know, my motivation probably came from wanting to get further with that unfinished business. And my eventual release from that was accepting it would never be finished. Uh, and that was okay, and that I'd done enough, and that also someone else was better at the next part of the journey. It's a phenomenal journey you've been on, so tapping into a bit of advice for the founders and entrepreneurs that are listening in. So what would be your key advice to a founder that was exploring private equity for the first time? Exploring private equity, you're about to enter a a four or five year marriage with an arranged divorce at the end of it. And uh, I've often wondered, is it a sprint or a marathon? I can't decide. It's four or five years. It can go quickly or it can be torturously long if you're with the wrong partner. So I think you've really got to choose someone you want to be around when things aren't working well, because things are not going to go well all the time. I mean, when I look back at our history, we had some very dark times when things, you know, everything went wrong in a year. You know, I could remember my first year with Great Hill Everything went wrong that year, all my own faults. Everything we touched broke and stopped working. And every time I called Chris Busby up to tell him about another disaster, his answer was always the same. He'd listen and then he'd say, okay, Glenn, well, I'm not worried. You've got it, you'll sort it out. That's all he ever said. And those words were so powerful because they just gave me the confidence that I would figure it out somehow. 
Uh, and he was right, I always did. So I think you know choosing that really wisely is the most important thing. The deal dynamics and the money, frankly, doesn't make a lot of difference because it all gets so muddled up over multiple exits anyway, you know, and different tax rates and stuff. Like, you know, don't make a decision based on ego and purely on valuation. You, you want to choose the people that you think are going to help you on the next five years the best and who you want to be talking to when it's difficult. And what about for the people that have just selected or are selecting private equity, what about the first year? What's your top tips for the first year of being a private equity CEO? Well, the best piece of advice anyone ever gave me is probably the one I'm going to pass on. So it was given to me by a guy called Michael Whitfield, who was CEO of Thompson's Online Benefits, which is another London-based tech firm, which we sort of competed with and sort of partnered with, depending on what day of the week it was. And I remember I was probably about four years in, probably just about doing that deal of inflection. And he said to me, Glenn, the toughest thing you'll have to deal with is when you look at somebody who's been your right-hand person right from the start, been your trusted confidant and partner right from day one, and you say to them, this is as far as we're going to go on the journey together. You've done your bit and it's time for you to leave and I need somebody else in your role. He said, because it's really hard to do that. You're going to feel disloyal. It's going to feel difficult, but it's going to be the right thing to do. And you've got to be constantly keeping your team under review and under edit as you grow. And I remember him saying that and I was like, when's that going to happen? Who is it? And I kept looking at all my colleagues thinking like, who is it? Everyone seems perfect. And then, of course, it happens. You know, you, you realize that, that someone's done a great job for you but it's time for someone else to do the next stage of what you need for that role. And I think, you know, it's not only the best bit of advice I've ever received, it's probably also the most common issue I see in businesses. The number of times I hear the words, so-and-so, well, they're not really very good at their job, but they've been here since the start, or they know too much, we can't afford to lose them, or there's some reason. And, you know, whenever I hear that someone isn't really the right person, but we can't lose them, you need to address that. you know. And I think building great teams in fast-growing companies is not actually about recruitment. People think it's all about recruiting and finding the best talent. It's not actually. It's about editing and constantly reviewing your team and constantly saying, is this team the right team for the next couple of years ahead? So being really good at an exit, being really good at sitting someone down and saying, you've done an amazing job this last three years, but this is as far as we're going getting really good at that, getting good at the finance of it, the maths of it, how you compensate someone, how you look after someone on the way out, how you do it in a way where you can sleep at night. That's probably the most important thing, I think. In terms of the future, briefly tell us about your role as entrepreneur in residence at Tenzing. Well, I'm uh, yeah entrepreneur in residence. So I'm building our growth function, which is the growth function which uh, tries to help our businesses to grow. So I chair the entrepreneurs panel, which is me plus five people like me, but smarter and better and more experienced. Lovely, lovely group of people who done a similar journey to me or, or more advanced in some cases. And we lend our support to the, to the portfolio. I run our Sherpa program, which is where we embed a really high quality kind of all around a commercial operations executive in with the CEO on their first 18 months of their journey with us. And I run and develop and run our subject specialist network, which is our specialists in sales, HR, product and engineering, who support the portfolio on specific projects and tasks as we go. And then I also provide the little bit which I can do myself is the kind of pastoral care, which is uh, providing a, a listening ear to stressed out CEOs worrying about if they're doing the right sort of job and, and if they're coping okay. Uh, and that's my job. So I'm building out that team, building the network, trying to get better at it, trying to integrate it better into Tenzing's 
business and process as best as I can. And that's what I do. And what do you enjoy most about it? Uh, I get to work with some really nice people. And there's a big variety of people that I work with. I think, you know, well, I've had one-to-ones today with Sherpas, with heads of product, with CEOs, all different parts. And it's nice when you can listen to someone talking about their week or their month or their issues. You can have a chat and then you say, was that at all helpful? And they go, oh my God, Glenn, that was really, really helpful. You've really, really helped move me on. And they're like, oh, okay. And often I'm not sure which thing I said that was really helpful to them. I'm just grateful that something I said was helpful to them. A few quick fire questions, if that's okay. Of course. Have you got a favourite book that you'd recommend? So I always used to answer that question as Powerful by Patty McCord, which was the first book written about the Netflix culture. And no disrespect to Patty, who I know very well, but I think I'm going to update it. So I think my current best business book recommendation is called No Rules, Rules, which is actually the second book written about Netflix business and culture. It's written by Reed Hastings and Erin Mayer. And it just takes what Powerful did and puts it into a lot more detail with a lot more examples and a lot more fact. And I think we all know Netflix as a great you know, place where you go and watch your streaming programs. But until you read the books, it's difficult to understand what an incredible journey that they went on and how they delivered that by really being the ultimate rebel and doing things very, very differently to what you would normally expect in business. And I think all businesses can learn a lot from that book. And what about the most inspirational person for you? Inspirational person, you know, I've never, I've never really been a big sort of follower of kind of Richard Branson's and stuff. I have a mild dislike of Elon Musk because he just seems like not the nicest person and I, I kind of don't give him a pass for being a great entrepreneur. The sort of people who inspire, that have inspired me over the years are people like Brene Brown with her work on leadership and vulnerability, people like Ariana Huffington. Her talk about well-being at the HubSpot 2015 conference probably saved my life in being the thing that got me into the gym and got me into looking after my own health as a way of looking after my business's health. And I think Brene Brown's someone that you should definitely let into your life in one way or another. And uh, finally, what do you think are the most important qualities for a founder or an entrepreneur? Look, business is all about people for me. Anyone who thinks it's not about people, I just struggle to understand how they think they're going to get anything done. So I think business is all about people. And I think when we talk about, you know, strategy, we could all come up with a winning strategy, but if you can't execute on that strategy, you're not going to get anywhere if you execute partially. And strategy execution is about getting people to believe in what you're doing and getting people to want to do it and then people doing it. So I think being people-centric and really understanding and, and caring and taking the time to think about your people and how to get the best out of them is key. I think technology is a fantastic lever to scale to sort of multiply your resources. And I know there's been many times when I was CEO that I was grateful that I had a tech background because I, I would think, Jesus, you know, this stuff's okay, I can do this. And if you're not, if you haven't got a tech background, this could be really hard. Glenn, thank you. You've been an absolute star. Thoroughly enjoyed listening to you and really appreciate the candid honesty that you have taken all of your life, but not just that, but more importantly, this podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. What I loved about talking to Glenn is the feel you get for how he challenges almost everything that he sees for the first time, orientates himself in a new subject, decodes it, and if it's valuable, integrates it into business. 
He is naturally very curious and his search of knowledge and new experiences goes in all sorts of directions, but he always assesses his learning as against the core basic principles of growing sales and minimizing costs. He repeatedly anticipates and then solves issues even before they arrive and it's no surprise that he founded and ran one of the most successful UK tech businesses of the last decade. I'm again truly privileged to have him both as a friend and as a colleague. If you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Glenn and want to hear more inspiring stories, you can search Tenzing or The Ascent on any of your usual podcast platforms. We'd also love for you to rate and review this episode. And please don't forget to subscribe so you'll be the first with access to your future ones. You can find out more on tenzing.pe, on Twitter, LinkedIn or on Instagram. I'd love talking to you. Bye for now.